It's Friday, February 28th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. It's being called the Noah's Ark of Citrus, the Givadon Citrus Variety Collection at UC Riverside in California. And it has over 1,000 different citrus specimens. But one thing that could destroy it all is the bacterial infection known as citrus greening which kills trees and produces inedible fruit. Citrus greening has caused over $2 billion in losses in Florida, and worries are that it could also ruin things here in California. The infection is transmitted by small insects, so the only way to keep them out is to put up nets and screens around the trees. Gustavo Arellano, reporter at the LA Times, joins us for the effort to save citrus from greening. Next, we have the first possible instance of community exposure of COVID-19 in Northern California. A woman has been infected and she did not travel to the heart of the outbreak in China or have contact with anyone that had the virus. It is concerning because it could be a sign that it is spreading in the community and it's tough to track who might have had contact with this woman. President Trump has set up a COVID-19 task force led by Mike Pence to handle the federal response, but it continues to seem that coronavirus will continue to spread. Aaron Alday, health writer at the San Francisco Chronicle, joins us for what we know about the latest case. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. What's happening is that they've discovered citrus greening about two miles away from the citrus collection. So their caretakers, they have to now think of the possibility that the citrus collection may be no more. So they have to take the steps to ensure its future and survival. Joining us now is Gustavo Arellano, reporter at the LA Times. Thanks for joining us, Gustavo. Gracias for having me. We're going to be talking about what's going on right now at UC Riverside. They're calling it the Noah's Ark of Citrus, and caretakers are trying to fight off a fruit apocalypse. We've talked about this on the podcast before in reference to Florida specifically. There's something going on called citrus greening, and in Florida specifically, uh, it's caused over $2 billion in losses there. There's acres and acres of orange groves and citrus groves that are just affected with this, and it renders the fruit inedible. You can't eat it. It kills the trees, basically. And it's been here in California for some time now, but they're taking more steps to try to prevent this from spreading. Gustavo, tell us what's going on at UC Riverside specifically right now. At UC Riverside, they have something called the Javadon Citrus Variety Collection. It's one of the largest collections of citrus in the world. It's literally like a Noah's Ark. They have two of Almost every kind of citrus plant imaginable, so over 1,000 specific specimens. This is a legendary institution in the world of citrus. This goes back 113 years. All the citrus growers and orange juice producers, all of them know about it. And you walk through it, it's like heaven. I mean, imagine. Here's a lemon. It's not just one lemon, but like hundreds of types of lemons. Here's a citrus that's as small as your pinky nail. It's as big as your head. And it's an open laboratory, so the scientists there have been doing stuff in the name of citrus for, again, over 100 years. And for the past uh, decade or so, they've been fighting the citrus greening. And so now, though, what's happening is that they've discovered citrus greening about two miles away from the citrus collection. So their caretakers, they have to now think of the possibility that the citrus collection may be no more. So they have to take the steps to ensure its future and survival. I've been following this partly because I am a citrus freak. I love citrus. I love oranges. I love lemons in my food and all that. So I've been following this, as I said, in Florida and, you know, now uh, here in California. Tell us about this bacterial infection known as citrus greening. It's called Huanglong Bing, and it comes from China. Tell us a little bit about it and what we know. So Huanglong Bing, or citrus greening, it's 
transmitted by an insect called the Asian citrus psyllid. So it was first spotted in the United States in the early 2000s in Florida, as you mentioned, just has destroyed the citrus industry. They're like wrecked havoc. It was first spotted in California in 2012. And it's like the White Walkers of Game of Thrones right now. There is no cure. It's slowly spreading around Southern California. There's been over 1,000 backyard trees uprooted, and there's been a quarantine now in a lot of Southern California, over 1,000 acres spreading across all the counties that keeps seems to grow every couple of months. And so scientists have not been able to not even solve it, but even be able to stop it. So it really is a fruit apocalypse for everyone involved. And here in Southern California, we view a backyard lemon tree or orange tree or lime tree as our birthright. It's part of the Southern California landscape. And conceivably, if they don't stop citrus greening, all that citrus will be gone. It'll be completely gone from the landscape. You know, I keep bringing Florida up. There's a lot of major citrus producers that have the resources to replant. That's really the only thing you can do once a tree gets infected is clean it out, replant it, and hope that uh, citrus silids don't come back. But a lot of smaller citrus producers really don't have the resources to do that. And here in California, we just have this wealth of it, especially at UC Riverside. Obviously, we don't want it to get infected. So one of the only effective methods to prevent this is to put up nets and screens around the trees just so that the little insects don't get in there, don't get to the tree. Tell us about how UC Riverside is working with this method to protect what we have there. UC Riverside scientists, they have actually a couple of backups to backups. So they have preserved the genetic code of every single one of their specimens. So that's one. They have right now, uh, run by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, there's a big greenhouse where they have saplings of a lot of the trees. But the big stuff that UC Riverside is going to do through their sponsors, Javadan, which is the Swiss fragrance company, they're going to build a three-acre structure of like basically a humongous greenhouse, but instead of uh, windows or glass, it's going to be open netting. And it's, it's they're going to take a lot of precautions to be able to make sure that the Asian citrus island doesn't come in. So uh, in those three acres, they're going to plant about a thousand of the most important trees in their collection. And they're planting them on the ground because, you know, citrus likes to grow on the ground instead of in a pot. It can grow in a pot, but you really want it in the ground. And as a test case, they're actually monitoring something called the Parrot Washington Naval Orange. So this is the very first naval orange tree ever planted in the United States. It's still around. It's 147 years old, and it's still producing fruit. It's 17 feet tall. So for over a century, you could just it used to be in someone's backyard, and then about 50 years ago, they planted it on the corner of Magnolia and Arlington and Riverside. Just, you, know, you can see it just out in the open. Last year, they put this protective netting around it as a test example to make sure that one of the most important parts of citrus history remains citrus greening free. And so far, so good. For my story, I went down there and yeah, it's heavy with fruit. You can see the fruit through the netting, but still, it's kind of a little bit weird. You know, you're used to seeing citrus plants out in the open and here it's protective. It really looks like the dystopian future that <laughs> people always write about. You talk about his citrus history here in California. And, you know, for a long time, there was orange groves all over the place. There was already some virus-borne citrus diseases that took out a bunch of it in the past and that the uh, growers there sold the land and that kind of led to... Southern California as we know it, basically. Tell us a little bit about that. So if you know anything about citrus at all, you know that they're very temperamental trees. You have to guard against pests. You have to make sure they don't get 
too much water, but also too little water. And it seems every generation or so, there's this existential threat that destroys all these trees and people have to start over again. So over a century ago, there was a fungus that infected the roots that led to root rot. It was called the black rot. From the 1930s through the 1950s, there was another thing. Uh, this one was a viral infection, and it was called quick decline. But the better name, the other name that the citrus growers had for it was tristeza, sadness in Spanish. Like in that case, trees would literally die overnight if they were infected. So there was such huge die-offs that, especially here in Orange County, a lot of the citrus growers, they said, you know what, we're not going to grow anymore. We're just going to go up to the Central Valley. We're going to sell our land here and convert it into housing. So if it wasn't for tristeza, we literally probably would not have this in California we know today. So the scientists are fighting at UC Riverside. Of course, they don't want the citrus collection to be infected with citrus greening. They're almost resigned to the fact that, look, like, this happens every generation, so we're going to have to solve it. And then after we solve it, then something else is probably going to come up even worse than that. It's a back-and-forth battle. The best quote I actually got was one of the scientists there, he said, look, in the battle of humans versus insects, insects always win. Right, exactly. And even some of the next steps are to create different varietals of all this citrus that are resistant to these diseases. But as you mentioned, something new pops up. So it is kind of that cycle that we have to fight. But in the meantime, there at UC Riverside, they really are trying to get a handle on this citrus greening problem that's happening all over the place. Gustavo Arellano, reporter at the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Gracias. Eighty-four hundred plus uh, are currently being monitored, uh, with forty-nine local jurisdictions doing those protocols and monitoring as it relates to more traditional commercial flights that came in uh, from points of concern and potential points of contact, uh, particularly in Asia. Joining us now is Aaron Alday, health writer at the San Francisco Chronicle. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Hi. Thanks for having me. We have a new case of coronavirus, COVID nineteen, in. Northern California. This one is different in the fact that it could be the first instance of community exposure. The person infected there, we don't know where she contracted it from. She was not in Wuhan, China. She didn't have contact with anybody that came from the region or had it already. So this is the big mystery. And this is cause for concern only because if she caught it from some random patient zero who we don't know who it is, there could potentially be other people that could come down with this. Erin, what do we know about this new case? So you summed it up nicely. This woman we know was in her community for some time not feeling well. So I think a few days um, is the word we're getting. She had flu-like symptoms and took herself to a local hospital in the city of Vacaville in Solano County. And this was just a small local hospital. She kind of walked in. They admitted her. They treated her. She was intubated and put on a ventilator when her condition suddenly worsened. And at that point, she was transferred to another hospital facility, UC Davis Medical Center, where she was in very serious condition. And the doctors there sort of immediately were concerned that she had this very serious illness and that they weren't able to find the source of illness which made them think that this could be coronavirus, even though she didn't have any of the other criteria. So the point is that she was in her community and treated at the small hospital for several days, maybe a week before anybody knew or suspected that she could have coronavirus. I know health workers are obviously always taking care of themselves, wearing the proper protection, masks, whatever they need to. But if they weren't suspecting that it could have been coronavirus at first, they did put her on a ventilator and all that. Is it possible that those health workers could have also been exposed to this? 
Yeah, for sure. That's definitely a concern at this point. And in fact, healthcare workers at that hospital have been sent home and are self-quarantining for presumably for the incubation period. They haven't said how long, but they are at home and they're monitoring themselves for symptoms. Because yeah, I mean, people do take standard care. There is standard precautions you take, but there is a whole level up from that that people are taking with coronavirus patients. And presumably these healthcare workers would not have been doing that if they had no reason to think this person had the virus. There was also a lot of questions about the timeline that happened with this. The patient arrived at UC Davis on Wednesday, February 19th. It wasn't until four days later on Sunday, February 23rd, that they were tested for coronavirus. And then the results came back on Wednesday, the 26th. What happened? Why did they wait so long to test this person? Basically, the wait time was because the CDC has, since the start of this, had very strict protocols on who gets tested. And that was basically, you had to have not only symptoms, but have either recently traveled to China or had a known exposure to somebody who had already been diagnosed with the coronavirus. So if you didn't meet those criteria, then they just weren't going to test you. And I think there was some sort of flexibility in there. If you had maybe been in contact with somebody who had recently traveled to China, I think that they could have conversations. But in this case, this woman met no criteria at all. There was just nothing about her to make them think coronavirus, even though her doctors were concerned. The question is what made them finally be convinced to test her. And I think that was probably just because they knew this woman had a viral infection and nothing was turning up positive. So it turned out that they needed to test. But yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the big questions here is have we reached a point now where those protocols don't work anymore? If this thing is in the community, then we probably should be testing more people based on other criteria besides just a travel history and exposure to known cases. Right now, the hunt is on, I guess, for whoever the patient zero would be. And it's tough. I mean, especially if this patient right now is on a ventilator, you know, who knows how bad her condition really is. But they have to trace her steps back to see where she possibly contracted it. And that's tough, but it's also important because you need to know the trajectory of how the virus is moving. Yeah, I mean, it's both how it's, you need to know where she might have been exposed, so they need to trace her whereabouts, but also who she may have then interacted with. So it's sort of, you know, on both ends of the spectrum, they need to really figure that out. But you're right, she's on a ventilator, so I imagine that will complicate that process. California Governor Gavin Newsom spoke about what the state is doing. He said they're working with the Center for Disease Control, obviously, but he said also said that they're monitoring like some 8,000 people possibly but we only have about 200 or so test kits in the state. That doesn't necessarily point to a big state of readiness, it seems like. I mean, yes and no. I will say when they say they're monitoring 8,000, I think it's 8,400 or something like that. Those are people who every single person who has returned to California from China in, since February 2nd is asked to self-quarantine for two weeks. So that 8,000 is simply every single person who has recently flown back from China. The vast majority of those people are not going to have coronavirus. And there certainly is a reason to say that now is not the time to be testing every single one of those people, especially because my understanding is we still don't know exactly when the right time to test people is. There sort of is a window of when people are going to test positive for it. And they're still kind of doing studies to figure out exactly when that appropriate time is. So in the meantime, it's not really logical to test every single one of those people. But that being said, now that we have this community case, presumably there is talk that we really need to be doing surveillance of this disease and not just diagnosing individuals, but sort of more widespread testing to just figure out if there are cases in the community that we're not catching. President Trump had a news conference on Wednesday and said that we as a country are very, very ready for something like this. He said that Vice President Mike Pence is going to lead the administration's response. There's like a COVID-19 task force that they're setting up so they can keep seeing what's going on. 
there is a lot of hysteria around this. Rightly so, maybe overblown. Maybe it's maybe a little bit of both. It is spreading all over parts of the world. But help us calm down a little bit about this. The COVID-19, from my understanding, about 80% of people who do contract it, it is mild symptoms. It's not that bad. And it's a lot fewer instances where people really do get very sick and die from this. That's all correct. And, you know, you raised a really important point, which is it's very hard to strike that balance between telling people this is something you should be aware of and concerned about, but it's also not something you should be panicking about. And I think you focused on the 80% are mild, and that's really important for people to remember, and that's important to note. I think the concern and the reason why we want to follow this is because if this thing were to explode like it has in China, which presumably it could, it obviously has that capability, this virus does. Yeah, 80% of people are probably going to be fine, but 20% of a large denominator of a large population of sick people would be a pretty hefty strain on our health systems. And the fatality rate right now is about 2%, and we'd rather not have that 2% die. So if we can keep it from getting in here, from getting traction, from spreading widely, that's where these really aggressive public health efforts are coming from. It's tough to really sift through all of this. Obviously, the media is going crazy with it because it is new, right? The novel coronavirus, that's what it's called. And people are very unfamiliar with it, and they're worried that it could be much worse. But as I said, compared to other ones like SARS and MERS, it's not necessarily that bad just yet. And we don't know much about this. There's a lot yet to be done. I know there's already been some possible vaccines submitted for testing and trials. But still, those are months and months away from actually, you know, I mean, they're saying like a year to a year and yeah. a half for, for a vaccine. Yeah, exactly. And that's tough for a lot of people to really understand. And I know a lot of people are asking a lot of questions about wearing face masks and things like that. So there's just a lot that people have to digest with all of this. It's true. It's a lot of information. And it's hard for people to see that, you know, we're quarantining people at Air Force bases and we're asking 8,000 people in California alone to isolate at home. I mean, we're taking these really aggressive public health stances and at the same time keep saying, oh, but the risk is low. (laughs) I mean, I think that it is a hard thing. And I mean, both of those messages are correct. I mean, all of that is true, but it's hard for people to grasp what to do with that information. And I get that. I think that we just kind of have to keep putting it out there. So the last question I just have on all this, the president had requested $2.5 billion to help with a federal response to this. I know the CDC says they're on top of this. Is there any reason why we shouldn't trust that they are on top of this? Because lawmakers are asking or saying, you know, we need more money to throw at this. And local cities are issuing declarations of emergency so that they can get more funding for this. Is the response at the right level right now? I think so. It's hard to say, you know, what the right level is, but this thing is constantly shifting. It seems to me that they're kind of striking the right attack on this. I will say the one thing, and Gavin Newsom at the press conference this morning, he also said that the money is one thing he's not worried about, that they have money, they're going to pour whatever money they need into this, that that's not a concern. I think one thing that I know is the case is local public health departments at the county level are really responsible for a lot of the work of monitoring these cases in the community, of identifying them, doing the kind of case tracking. And the CDC is weighing in, other people are helping. But the counties, a lot of them are very small. They don't have really large staffs, and a lot of them don't have a big staff for doing this kind of work. And I think that they're prepared to do that on sort of emergency basis. They can, you know, come in and do these things for weeks at a time. But if this thing really takes off for long periods of time, you know, I think that's one of the big questions people have is, do we have the public health infrastructure, especially at the local level, to keep on top of this thing if it goes on for months at a time? Aaron Alday, health writer at the San Francisco Chronicle. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. That's it for today. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.